It's good to be together this morning. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Greeley. We're continuing our journey through the book of the Gospel of John, this amazing eyewitness testimony, the count of the life and ministry of Jesus. And we've completed 12 of 21 chapters in the book of John, which if you're okay at math, that means we're at the halfway point. Hallelujah. And... Um, John, the author, has covered just about three years at this point in the life and ministry of Jesus. He's recorded that. Selecting specific signs and teachings from the life and ministry of Jesus to paint a picture of who Jesus is. Behold, he is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the promised one from old who has now come. And chapter 13, where we're gonna start this morning really slows things down in terms of time. What we have between chapter 13 and chapter 20 is called the farewell discourse and the passion narrative. And they cover the final days of Jesus on earth as he walks unto the cross. If you have your Bibles, Go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 13. That's where we're gonna be at this morning, starting in verse one. Uh, The sermon title for this morning is Washed Clean, Now Go. Washed Clean, Now Go. And we're gonna look at this, I would argue, like well-known text. If you grew up in the church, uh, more than likely, you had a sweet, sweet lady teach you about this text at some point in your life in the church. If you are not familiar with this text, that's okay. Um, You, like us, are gonna either uh, learn some things or be reminded of things as we consider what Jesus is really doing when he washes the feet of his disciples. So, first things first, I wanna answer, uh, ask the question and answer the question, what is washed? It's a little bit of a context for our journey this morning. What's going on? And then second, for our time, I wanna ask the question, what motivates Jesus to do this? Of all the things that Jesus could have done, why did he do this here and now? And then third, for our our time this morning, what's the result of that? So, uh, Jesus, what are you doing? What motivates you to do it? And what comes from it? And I wanna look at those three elements this morning and how they build the case for our sermon title this morning, that if you are washed clean by Jesus, if you're linked with him, then you share in the things of Jesus, and he has, as we will see yet again this morning, a purpose and a kingdom life that flows out of being joined with him. And so that is the journey, the roadmap for this morning. Let's open your Bibles to John chapter 13. I'm gonna uh, invite you to open your Bible and I'm gonna invite you to stand with me as we read uh, the first 30 verses. There's only about four sermons in here. Um, And so we're gonna do our best to make that into one sermon uh, this morning as as we read through the text. So follow along with me as I read, starting in verse one of John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, 
he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and he put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Surely, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one whom he sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his seal against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus on whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simeon Iscariot, and after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he has said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So Jesus has just made this highly public entry into Jerusalem, riding in on a donkey, where many people claimed and hailed him as the conquering king of the Jews. His time uh, of, of his arrival was perfect. He, he planned it that way to be connected with this feast of Passover, which we are pointed to again in verse one of chapter 13, where many, many Jews from all the surrounding area as well as even further out traveled to the city of Jerusalem each year to celebrate this important feast where God showed his provision to his people in the past, something about 1,500 years earlier 
The nation of Israel is enslaved to Egypt and God instructs his people to take an unblemished lamb, a spotless lamb, to kill it and take its blood and spread it over the doorposts and the frames of their homes so that when the God's angel of death came, he would see the sign of their faithfulness to God's instructions and pass over them, leaving them unharmed. That event marked the moment when the Egyptians let the people of God go, resulting in their liberation from enslavement and the beginning of their journey away from bondage into the land of promise. That is the feast of Passover that they are coming to celebrate here. So lots of people are coming. They're cramming into the city of Jerusalem. Many people already know about this guy named Jesus. They've either seen some of his miraculous signs They've heard some of his teachings, or guess what? They've heard other people talk about what they saw. We know from earlier on in the text that Jesus is sought out by many, many people, including Gentiles. We know that Jesus continued to teach publicly, but now here in John chapter 13, the very public nature of Jesus' ministry becomes very private as he and his disciples gather together Look at verses one through five. And we really don't know if this supper is the capstone to a very busy day in the life of Jesus and his disciples. Some people have speculated from other places in the gospel that it's possible that Jesus just got to Jerusalem riding in on a donkey and spent some of the day teaching publicly and is now with his disciples coming in from all of that and reclining at the table to eat. Now regardless if that is what has happened or if this is a different day, here is the setting that is completely unfamiliar to us in Greeley, Colorado in the 21st century. Here is point number one, what is washed? Jesus and his disciples have just journeyed from Bethany. We see that a couple chapters earlier. Bethany is located about two miles directly east of the city of Jerusalem. And it was customary during this time when you arrived and you headed inside to a home, you would find four things. One, a towel. Two, water, three, a basin, and four, a servant to wash the feet of those entering the home of their master. Now we know that this is customary based on other historical evidence as, other, as well as other places in scripture and from this text here that they've traveled about two miles. Two miles on a road that's probably more like a dirt path. Although Bethany is close to Jerusalem because of the insignificant nature of the town, it probably didn't uh, merit a high quality road. And so people would traverse, the disciples and Jesus traversed from Bethany to Jerusalem with open-toed sandals. And so when you get to your place of destination, you've got some pretty dirty feet to say the least. Not only are you traversing through the dirt path, but livestock are traversing through the dirt path. Some of you can pick up on that reality. Instead of uh, open 
uh, open-toed sandals. In my business, we wear things called muck boots. If you know what muck boots are, that's a very different application of a shoe than an open-toed sandal working around livestock, is it not? Now we know that Jesus had asked for provision to be made for this room to celebrate this time with his disciples, but somewhere along the lines, the host of such of this home providentially missed a pretty important detail. We see from this account that three of four things are present. There is water, there is a towel, and there is a basin. But there is no servant to wash the feet of the guests. Now enters the disciples and Jesus and they find their place around a low table. Customary at the time, they don't pull up a chair like we do. It's a low table and they would recline on a thin mat, often on one arm. Um, usually their left as they would eat with their right and their feet would protrude away from the table for obvious reasons. With no servant available, it's highly important that John wants us to know everything is ready for this thing to take place except the one to serve. It would have been customary for Jesus' disciples, at least one of them, to have performed this task of washing the feet of Jesus and his other disciples. But notice that no one has volunteered yet. Possibly because just moments ago, the the, the account of Luke in his gospel of Luke chapter 22 verse 24 tells us that a dispute just arose as to which one of them was regarded as greater. That just happened. And it seems likely that the reluctant act of service, the act of washing the feet of others, has its roots in this conversation marked by pride and self-interest. Needless to say, All the elements are present, but no one volunteers for this menial task. Verse four, the very end, Jesus rose from supper, more than likely having sat at the table first, but the meal has not started yet. And Jesus looks around and he notices, and maybe smells, quite frankly, that no one has taken up the task to start to serve them by washing each other's feet. And Jesus graciously and humbly lays aside his outer garment and he puts on the garment of a servant to perform the menial and quite frankly humiliating task of washing the dirty, dusty, stinky feet of his followers. That is the setting for this washing. What is being washed? It's feet. Who is doing it? It's Jesus. And whom does he wash? It is his followers. Verse six, he comes to Simon Peter. Oh, Peter. 
Now, we don't know like where Jesus started in the circle, right? But it's, it, we're led to believe based on the text that he didn't start with Peter. He's done a couple other disciples at this point. It says that he started to wash feet and then he gets to Peter. And what does Peter do? Peter sees the glory of God down at his dirty, filthy feet and he recoils. Like knowing Peter, he, he probably didn't just say what he said here. He, he probably literally like um, pulled his feet away from Jesus in shock. And he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Here the master that he loves and has followed has stooped down to serve Peter in an intimate and quite frankly humiliating act of service and we don't really understand the social status that this role played in their society. We just don't quite fully get it. John, the author, he tries to help us understand the significance of this type of role back when he talks about John the Baptist in John chapter one. Do you remember this? John the baptizer is proclaiming the coming of Jesus and what has he said? He says, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Like that is how profound John the Baptist saw Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, that he himself is not even worthy to serve in the lowest of the low of roles to serve Jesus. John the Baptist isn't even worthy of untying his sandal. And here Jesus is, the Son of Man, in full glory, is at the feet of Peter, not only untying the sandal, but washing his feet. Now before we go too much further in the text, let's just pause here for a second and ask and answer point number two for our time this morning. Like what motivates Jesus to do that? Like what motivates Jesus to do that? We've seen that Jesus is taking the opportunity to serve his followers in a deeply humble and even humiliating act of washing their feet. That's what he's doing. Why Why does Jesus do that? Verse one and verse three are the answer for this question. First, Jesus is motivated out of his love for his disciples. Notice that we're told in verse one that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Like Jesus' sacrifice and service unto his disciples ushered from a posture of affection and love for them, a love that would remain all the way up to and through the cross. Verse three tells us that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he came from God and that he was going back to him, rose and did the things that he did. This is profound. Notice how the love of Jesus and Jesus' standing before God produces self-sacrifice for those that Jesus loves, his disciples, that love him, and who else? The one that will betray him. Judas. Judas is present here and is served by Jesus in this way. He is not excluded. Not only is he present, but we know from verse 11, as well as the account from verse 21 through 30, that Jesus knew of Judas's betrayal before Judas did it. He knew. 
The other disciples did not know. Verse 22, like they looked around uncertain of whom Jesus spoke of. Like curious, like curiosity strikes John who has this desire to communicate him as the one that Jesus loved in the text is sitting near Jesus. They're reclining close enough together and Peter, good old Peter, like prompts John, you know, like, like ask Jesus, like who, who is gonna betray him? And so John leans in close to Jesus and he says, who is gonna betray you? And Jesus answers him. He says, it's gonna be the one to whom I give the morsel to. And he hands it to Judas and he tells Judas to go do what he will do quickly. Now, no one other than Jesus and Judas understand these things. That's what verse 29 tells us. No one understood it at the time. And yet, knowing all that will come, Jesus is found even at the feet of his betrayer, Judas, washing his feet. Now we should ask a question there. Why? Not only because he loves his disciples, verse one, but verse three, he's grounded in his standing before God. Meaning that Jesus' service, however it is received, either through acceptance or through betrayal, neither are his actual motivation for what he does. To say it another way, Jesus' confidence in his heavenly Father's acceptance of Jesus leaves Jesus to love and serve others regardless of how he himself is treated, regardless of whether it is reciprocated. Neither response impact his standing and his relationship with God. Like what a freeing sense that must be to be able to love and serve people knowing full well that what they do in return to your service has no bearing on your acceptance or approval. Our world doesn't operate that way. Our world and our interactions in the world are far more transactional by nature. Meaning, if I do this, you better do that. And if you don't do that, I'm gonna stop doing this. I'm gonna do this, you better do that. If you don't do that, I'm gonna stop doing this, right? That's a transactional relationship. Like, why as people, apart from God, do we operate this way? Because we're seeking approval. We seek out comfort. We seek out worth. We seek out satisfaction. And if there are people in your lives keeping you from that, let alone people that are obstacles to that, like we're told from this world, you just need to create boundaries around those types of relationships, right? Limit yourself to those kinds of interactions. Or possibly just jettison those types of people from your life and fill your life with other people where that transaction is far more fulfilling to you. The problem, the problem here is not that we shouldn't desire approval. It's not that we shouldn't desire satisfaction and worth. The, the problem of the human condition 
is that we seek those things outside the ultimate source, which is God. Which leads us to our final point, the most important point of our time this morning. Point number one, what's being washed? It's feet. Number two, what motivates Jesus to do it? It's his love and his standing before the Father. And now number three, what is the result of that? What is the result of that? It's easy as we read through the Gospels and we see all of these amazing physical signs and wonders that Jesus performed and it's harder to see the connection that they have with the Gospel message. Even here, in John chapter 13, it's easy to see the humble, servant-hearted leader who took off his own clothes, he put on the clothes of a servant and performed the task that they should have done but were unwilling to do, right? Like it's easy to look at that and then skip right over to verse 12 in this text where Jesus encourages them to go do as he has done, right? Verse 15, I've given you an example. And what a great example it is. But before we jump ahead to the call of action, I want us to take a deeper look at what John is writing and what I believe Jesus himself is doing. For this amazing example of a servant heart is not only a good example for us, for in it are the amazing results of the gospel for those that believe in Jesus' work. Apart from this great example, a part of this great example is a, a sign pointing to the means for which we will, that he will accomplish for us. So let's take a couple moments and ask, what does this act of service really result in? Let's start from the very beginning. And understand that these verses are a sign pointing to a greater act yet to come called the gospel. A couple things to consider. It is no coincidence that Jesus took off his own clothes and put on the clothes of a servant. For that is the very thing that he did when he took on human form. Philippians chapter 2. Setting aside equality with God, he entered into humanity, putting on the clothes of the flesh. That's not a coincidence. It is no coincidence that Jesus took up the task to serve the disciples when the disciples were right in the thick of arguing about their own greatness and worth. For that is the very thing that Jesus came to do to save individuals who were entangled in their own pride accomplishing for them what they could not do for themselves. It is no coincidence that through Jesus' own humiliation are the disciples served, for that is the very thing that Jesus came to do, to be humiliated even to the point of death on a cross. For Jesus himself is the one worthy regardless of the humiliation that we pour upon him. It is no coincidence that Jesus chose the Passover feast to wash the feet of his disciples, for Jesus himself is the better lamb, 
that will be slain, whose blood will wash us clean so that the wrath of God might pass over you. See, this is the amazing sign of the gospel where the human heart in rebellion against God, it needs to be washed. It needs to be washed clean. Otherwise, we can have no part with Jesus and God. Peter understood this. In verse eight, look at that. Peter questions if Jesus should be doing this. He's like, are you, are you sure? Are you sure? And what does Jesus say? He says, unless I do this, you sh- will have no share with me. And what does Peter say? All right, then not just my feet, but do my head and my whole body. Do it all. See, Peter understands, at least in part, what Jesus is saying, unless I do this, Peter, you can't be with me. And Peter, being Peter, says, then don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. Verse 10, Jesus says to Peter, I have washed you. You are completely clean. You don't need to be washed again, Peter. And what is the result of Jesus' better washing? For those that have trusted and followed Jesus, you get declared as clean, completely clean, never to need another spiritual bath again. And because of that, because of our share in Christ, Romans 8, verse 16 through 17 tells us this. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if we are then children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. Notice here, as well as in Romans, connected to our share in Christ is also our call to action that Jesus gives. They're connected, but, but please, 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 please understand the call to action Right? The call of obedience, it stems out of an already clean heart. A heart that has been impacted by the gospel of Jesus. If you haven't been cleansed by Jesus, if you haven't been washed and you simply go, that's moralism. And I fear that this text has been twisted to produce a lot of moralism in the church. We see this amazing example of Jesus and if you see this text and all that is amazing about Jesus and you don't see the connection with the gospel, you're gonna go try to be like Jesus. When you aren't first remembering or experiencing the share that we have in Jesus, verse eight, that we are in Jesus, that brings about life, the sacrificial love and sacrifice. Like we can't miss this church, it's subtle. It's so, so subtle. But it's washed clean, now go. It's not go get clean. Do you see the difference? It's washed clean, now go, not go to get clean. 
The truth of Jesus' work on the cross, his sacrificial death, his payment for our sin before God and his glorious resurrection available to all that would turn from their own pride and self-striving and look to Jesus, that is the foundation of the abundant life in Christ that only he can give. Because Jesus has declared us clean. He's done that through his life and his death and his glorious resurrection. Now we can go. Maybe to put it a little stronger, now we are to go. Not just should go and can go, but are called to go. We're called to go following his example of service. We are to go proclaiming him to others. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, right? Therefore, because of all that Jesus has done, we're ambassadors to Christ. Look at, look at uh, focus on John 13, verse 20. Get your mind and heart there. Consider the similarities of the rest of this text from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Like, we are to go out into the world not looking for a different way to get cleaned up before God when we fail. But we are able, because of our state before God, to confess our sin and our failures, allow him to clean up our feet. Knowing full well that as we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John chapter one, verse nine, praise God. Notice the implications of that truth are for the ongoing life of a believer. Like that's what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 13 with washing feet. He tells, he tells Peter, he says, you've been bathed. You don't need another bath. However, you still need to confess your sin. It is necessary for your own sake before God. Confess and know that he's faithful and just to forgive. This is the result of Jesus' work. It's our share with Jesus. It's the call to go, not to earn what we have in Jesus. Right? It's not this. That's moralism. Try harder, church. Just try harder. The gospel is this. He's made you new. He's bathed you and declared you clean. Now live that out. This is the life that we are called to live. These are the words of Jesus. That the servant is not greater than the master. That's what he says here at the end. If Jesus himself pursued the acts of service unto others, motivated out of love and assurance of his sanity before God, so we too are called into such a life. A life marked 
by our assurance in Christ so that we're able to love and serve regardless if it's reciprocated. Like regardless how your spouse responds. Regardless the way your kids respond. Regardless the way your neighbors respond, your coworkers respond, your boss responds, or other friends responds. Like that we would be people so assured of our standing before Jesus, our identity founded in the deep anchor of the gospel that we love and we serve regardless of the reciprocity. We don't need reciprocity. We don't need it to be reciprocated. If you're out there serving for the sake of others to serve you, you're going to be constantly disappointed. We don't need reciprocity from this world because you have all things in Jesus. He's the one that has washed us, therefore, church, knowing that, meditating on that, like cultivating that in our lives, like we get to go. Like let us be a church, oh God, that would make great the name of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our lives. And as we do that, I believe that he is gonna use our lives to bring forth kingdom transformation in the lives of others for his glory and their good, 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 good favor. Their good kindness of God. The good and necessary life that can only be found in God. Let us consider the reality often church that we've been washed clean now we can go amen let's pray Lord God great are you and greatly to be praised Lord I confess I am so entangled with my need to be received by others, my need to be praised, my need to uh, feel worthy, appreciated, esteemed. And I'm, I'm grateful, Lord God, that you do not leave me there. I'm grateful for the reality, Lord God, that everything that I need, everything that we need as people are founded in the gospel of Jesus, what you have done on our behalf, Lord God. So as we consider this great example of this text, oh Lord God, that we could serve and love others, Lord God, may we have it deeply rooted in the reality of the gospel, what you have done for us. That we're not out there trying to earn or receive anything we don't already possess, Lord God. May we be a church that crushes moralism and lifts high the gospel of Jesus. 
And as we marinate and we reflect upon those truths, Lord God, I pray that it would bubble over, that the glass would be full and that it would permeate outward and it would water the ground around us. In this city, as we go out for your great glory and the good of your blood-bought people, Lord God, we love you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.